0: This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 233A by Rudolf Steiner, two small lecture cycles, one entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, Mystery Centers of the Middle Ages, and the other, the one I'm finishing today in the end of the book, is the Easter Festival and the History of the Mysteries. This is ten lectures. I am on the tenth lecture, tenth and final lecture, which is lecture four in this small cycle, translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine, given in dornock on the 22nd of april 1924 readers aside there is also or there are also a number of appendices after this which i won't be reading uh, that are they look very good so i suggest you get the book okay end of readers aside we have seen how out of the mysteries has grown what has bound human consciousness so closely to the universe that this bond found expression In the annual round of festivals. And we have seen especially how the festival of Easter has evolved out of the principle of initiation. From all that has been said, you must have been struck by the great importance of the part played by the mysteries in the development of humankind. Everything spiritual that passed through the world in ancient times, by which we were able to develop, did in fact have its rise out of the whole life and content of the mysteries making use of a modern expression, we might say. The mysteries had a great deal of power with respect to the guidance of all spiritual life. Now, humanity was ordained from the beginning to develop freedom. That this might develop, it was necessary that the life of the mysteries should decline. So for a long time, we were not so closely associated with the powerful guidance coming from the mysteries, and were left more to ourselves. It is very certain we cannot yet say that the time has come when we have attained true inner freedom, that we are now sufficiently ripe to pass on to the next age, following the one in which freedom has been gained. Truly we are unable to say this. All the same, there are a sufficient number who have gone through incarnations in which the power of the mysteries was less apparent than formerly. And if today the seed of their passage through these incarnations has not yet germinated, still it is there. It is implanted in human souls. And as an age is now approaching, which will again be an age of greater spirituality, we must begin to develop what in our present state of dullness we have not yet developed. But, above all, it will be necessary for knowledge, for intuition, for experience of the spirit that can be gained through contemporary initiation to encounter the esteem and reverence gained through freedom. Without appreciation, without reverence in true knowledge, a spiritual life is really not possible. We make a right use of these festival seasons when we employ them to develop and, in some small extent, to implant in our souls this feeling of appreciation and reverence for what is spiritual that has evolved in the course of human history, when we endeavor to learn as intimately as possible how and why external historical events point to spiritual facts and carry over what is spiritual from one age into another. This is mainly possible because we come, again and again, into earthly existence, in recurring earthly lives, and therefore carry with us into later epochs what we had experienced in earlier ones. Humans are the most important factors in the further development of human history. In every age they live in a definite surrounding or atmosphere, and one of the most important of these was that of the mysteries. Thus, one of the most important agents in human progress is the power to carry over what was experienced in the mysteries and to live this again, whether it be in the mysteries themselves, where it works into humanity at large, or simply as cognition or knowledge. Today this must be in some form of conscious knowledge, for the true life of the mysteries has withdrawn, more or less, from the external life of today, and must come forth into it again. We are here constrained to say it is indeed the case that if that impulse which went forth from the Christmas conference here at the Gertianum really enters into the life of the Anthroposophical Society, this society, by leading further to the classes that are to be instituted, and indeed this institution has already begun, pressing onward to ever greater depths of knowledge can provide the foundation of a further living content of the mysteries. This furtherance of the being of the mysteries must be nurtured consciously within the anthroposophical society. For this society has experienced an event that can be utilized in evolution in the same way as a similar event was once utilized, the burning of the temple at Ephesus. Both there and here A great wrong lies at the root of what was done. Things present, however, different aspects on different levels. And what is at one level a dreadful wrong may be used in accordance with human freedom in such a way that real human progress can be achieved through it. If we are to enter into such matters with understanding, we must grasp them, as I have already said, in as intimate a way as possible. We must study the special way in which the spiritual things of the world were cultivated in the mysteries. I indicated in the last lecture how, out of the spiritual observation of the constellations of the sun and moon, as practiced in the mysteries, the fixing of the annual festival of Easter was determined. Further, that the other planets were regarded from the point of view of the moon. I said that according to what was experienced in the observations of the other planets, we were guided in our descent from pre-earthly to earthly existence, that our luminous etheric body was constructed in accordance with what was then seen. Now if anyone desires to gain some comprehension of how through the forces of the moon, or rather through the spiritual observations by the moon, These etheric forces were transmitted to humans, this can be done, as we have tried to do, from observation of the cosmos itself, where it is inscribed, where it exists as fact. But it is most important that the human interest, which throughout the ages has been felt in these truths, should be permitted to influence the soul. Never did human souls and minds take so much interest in the descent of the soul from pre-earthly existence. Never was so intimate an interest felt in the last stage of this descent in our clothing of ourselves with the etheric body as in the mysteries of Ephesus. In the mysteries of Ephesus, the whole ritual practiced by the goddess of Ephesus, who is named exoterically, in quotes, Artemis, was really directed toward participating in the spiritual blending and interweaving of life in the ether of the universe, in the cosmic ether. We can venture to say that when those taking part in the mystery of Ephesus approached the image of the goddess, an enhancement of perception occurred which amounted to hearing, and what was heard might be given in the sounds of the goddess somewhat as follows. I rejoice in all that is fruitful within the wide-spreading universal ether. This expression of inward joy on the part of the goddess exercised a very profound influence on all growing, blossoming life in the universal ether. And feelings inwardly connected with this springing life breathed like a magic sigh through the spiritual atmosphere of the sacred precincts of the temple of Ephesus. All the arrangements at this center of the mysteries were so directed as to enable people to say, nowhere but at Ephesus is there so close a union with the growth of living plants, with this sprouting and springing of the being of plants from the earth. This led to the fact that within those mysteries especially clear instructions were given concerning those secrets of the moon of which I spoke in the last lecture, and which were for the special purpose of bringing an understanding of such things to the souls of those who were adherents of the Ephesian mysteries. To feel ourselves as a form of light was an individual experience for each of these Ephesian pupils and initiates, for it was a real and living fact to them that their forms of light came to them through the moon. The instruction they received was somewhat as follows. Those able to let the instructions they received in the places of consecration work on them were entirely taken up with this self-construction out of sunlight that came to them by way of the moon. They then heard, as if coming to them from the sun, the tones Y, O, A. They knew that these tones, y, o, a, stimulated their ego and their astral body. y, o, equaled the ego and astral body, and they perceived the approach of the etheric light body in the a, forming together y, o, a. When these tones vibrated within the neophytes for initiation, they were conscious of their ego, of their astral body and etheric body. Then it was as if there rang forth from the earth, for we were now entered into the cosmos, something which enforced the Y-O-A, making of it E-V-Y-O-A. It was the forces of the earth that revealed themselves in the E-V. The neophyte now felt his whole human being in the Y-O-A. He felt a premonition of the physical body, as it was first on earth in the consonants which accompanied the vocalization, which in the Y-O-A indicated the ego, the astral body, and the etheric body. It was the experiencing of himself in the Y-O-A that enabled the pupil of the Ephesian mysteries to experience the final steps in his descent from the spiritual world. At the same time, the consciousness of the Y-O-A was such that they felt themselves to be in the light, that they were this tone, Y-O-A. They became human thereby, a resounding ego, a resounding astral body, within the luminous, shining, etheric body. Humans were then toned in light. This is how one is as cosmic human being. Humans are capable of accepting what they see out in the cosmos in the same way as here on earth we accept the things we see with our eyes when we look out upon our physical surroundings on the earth. The pupils of the Ephesian Mysteries really felt when they bore the y o a within themselves as if transported to the sphere of the moon. They shared in what was observed from the point of view of the moon. At that time, the human being was still a universal being. It first became man and woman at its descent to earth. But we then felt we were transported to the realms of pre earthly existence, though aware of the approach of what was earthly. This transporting of themselves into the sphere of the moon was to the Ephesian pupils an act of the greatest possible intimacy. They then bore within their hearts and within their souls all the things they had experienced and which sounded in their ears somewhat as follows quote, Thou being, offspring of worlds who in thy light form art strengthened by the sun under the moon's control thou art endowed by Mars with his creative resonance with Mercury's swinging movement of thy limbs enlightened by the rays of Jupiter's wisdom and by the love-bearing beauty of Venus and Saturn's age-old spiritual inwardness "...consecrates thee to life in space, to growth in time." Consciousness of this filled each pupil at Ephesus. They realized that this consciousness which pulsated through them was of the greatest consequence to their humanity. We can say that this was something which enabled a pupil belonging to the Ephesian mysteries to feel most truly human. To put it trivially, when these words sounded in their ears, they felt a consciousness dawn in them that connected them through the powers of their etheric body with the whole planetary system. This is expressed most pregnantly in the following words spoken to the etheric body by the universe. Thou being, offspring of worlds, who in thy light form, art strengthened by the sun under the moon's control. Close quote. The individual now consciously felt themselves within the power of the moonlight. Continue. Quote. Thou art endowed by Mars with his creative resonance, with Mercury's swinging movement of thy limbs. Close quote. Here the resonance, which has something creative in it, comes to us from Mars. And what imparts power to our limbs that enables us to become beings of movement, comes from Mercury, quote, with mer- Mercury's swinging movement of thy limbs, close quote, from Jupiter illumination comes to us, quote, enlightened by the rays of Jupiter's wisdom, close quote, and from Venus there comes this illumination, quote, and by the love-bearing beauty of Venus, close quote, In order that Saturn can gather together all that completes us inwardly and outwardly, preparing us for our descent to earth, clothing us with our physical body, and enabling this physically clothed being who bears God within to carry our life on earth, and Saturn's age-old spiritual inwardness consecrates thee to life in space, to growth in time. Close quote. From all I have described, you can gather that the spiritual life at Ephesus was inwardly bright and full of color. And this inwardly bright and colorful life contained precisely all that is summed up in the thoughts of Easter, all that human consciousness was able to grasp as our own intrinsic worth in the whole cosmos, the whole universe. Many of those wanderers to whom I alluded in the last lecture who passed from mystery to mystery in order that they might gather the full sum of those influences that came from the mysteries. Many of these wanderers have given us the assurance that nowhere had the harmonies of the spheres resounded so clearly, so inwardly, as they sounded at Ephesus, because of the perception they had of things as seen from the aspect of the moon. In no other place had the astral light of the world appeared so luminous, as when perceived in the light of the sun, flooded by the softly glimmering light of the moon, and spiritualized by this astral light, as humanity is ensouled by it, in no other place had they been able to perceive this, or at least not with the same joyousness and inward artistic acceptance. All this was associated with the temple, which later went up in flames through criminal or crazy folly. Initiates of these Ephesian mysteries were incarnated, as I informed you at the Christmas conference, in Aristotle and Alexander the Great. These individuals came in touch at that time with what could still be traced of the mysteries of Samothrace. Now, an external, apparently chance event Is sometimes of great importance in the evolution of the world. Some considerable time ago I informed you that the time of the burning of the temple at Ephesus coincided with the birth of Alexander the Great. But other things also took place through this burning of the temple. Oh, how manifold and tremendous are the things that have happened in the course of centuries to those who belonged to this temple. How much of spiritual light and wisdom has passed through these temple halls? And all that passed within these halls was recorded in the cosmic ether, while the flames burst forth from out of the temple. So that we can say, the continuous Easter festival at Ephesus, enclosed as it was within the temple's halls, has been inscribed ever since on the vast dome of the universe, in respect of this dome's etheric nature, though perhaps in letters that are not perceptible to all. And so it has been with many things. Much of the wisdom of humanity was in ancient times enclosed within temple walls. It has escaped from these walls, has been inscribed on the cosmic ether, and henceforth it is immediately visible there to those who have risen to real imaginative knowledge. This imaginative knowledge is to a certain extent the interpretation of the secrets of the stars. What once was the wisdom of the temple has been inscribed on the cosmic ether, and can thence be read by those possessing imagination. This can be put a different way, yet it is the same in whatever way it is put. One can say that I go forth into the night and gaze on the starry heavens, allowing the impressions they make to sink into me. And if the necessary faculties have been acquired, what is contained in the grouping of the constellations, in the movements of the planets, is transformed into a mighty script. And when this cosmic script is read, something emerges from it of a similar kind to what I described in the last lecture concerning secrets of the moon. These things can absolutely be read in the script of the firmament by those to whom the stars are not merely objects for mathematical calculations, but when they are letters in a cosmic script. Something further might here be added in order to elucidate this matter. At the very time the mysteries of the Kibiri arose in Samothrace, and the older mysteries were declining. Something emerged through the influence of these mysteries of the Kibiri, which for Alexander and Aristotle, were like a remembrance of the earlier times they had passed through together in a certain century at Ephesus. Parenthesis, Samothrace was still a mystery establishment of remembrance, and it was a place for cultivation and work. But in fact the life of the mysteries was in general decline. In the time of Alexander. Close in this moment, Alexander and Aristotle heard again, through the influence of the mysteries of the Kibiri, of recollection of the old time in Ephesus, in which both had participated. Once more, ya, o, oh, ah sounded within them quote, Thou being, offspring of worlds, who in thy light form art strengthened by the sun under the moon's control. Thou art endowed by Mars with his creative resonance, with Mercury's swinging movement of thy limbs, enlightened by the rays of Jupiter's wisdom and by the love-bearing beauty of Venus, and Saturn's age-old spiritual inwardness consecrates thee to life in space, to growth in time. Close quote. In this remembrance, in this historical remembrance of things long past, there lay a certain power for the creation of something new. From that moment, a power went forth for the creation of something new, a very remarkable new thing which has attracted very little attention. You must try to understand how this new creation which proceeded from Alexander and Aristotle was really brought about. Take some well-known poetic work, or any other work, the most beautiful you can find. Take, for instance, a German translation of the Bhagavad Gita, Goethe's Faust, or his play Iphigenia. anything on which you set a high value, and think of its rich and mighty content, such as Goethe's Faust, for example. By what means is this rich content communicated to you, my dear friends? Let us take it that it is communicated to you as is done in the case of the majority of individuals, that at some time of your life you read Goethe's Faust. What came to you on this occasion, on the physical plane? What was on the paper? Nothing was on the paper but certain combinations of A, B, C, D, E, etc. These combinations were the only means by which the mighty content of Faust was passed on to you. When you know the alphabet, there is nothing on the printed page that is not comprised in its twenty-six letters. But the rich content of Faust is conjured from the paper in a magic way by means of these letters. It is clear to the eye, E-Y-E, that the repetition of A-B-C is wearisome. It is the most abstract thing imaginable. Yet this abstract thing, rightly combined, gives you the complete Faust. And now... When that cosmic tone of the moon was heard again, the tone in which Aristotle or Alexander were versed, the meaning of the fire of Ephesus became clear. They knew how this fire had borne out into the far spaces of the cosmic ether the secret of Ephesus, and there now arose in Aristotle the inspiration to establish the cosmic script. Only this cosmic script could not be built on the foundation of ABCDEF but just as ordinary script was founded on letters the cosmic script was founded on thoughts in this way letters of the cosmic script came into being when I write down the following list the words are just as abstract as ABCD quantity quality attributes relation space Time, doing, suffering. You have here a number of ideas. Learn to accomplish with these ideas, which were first propounded to Alexander by Aristotle. Learn to do with these ideas what you have learned to do with ABCD. You then learn how to read from the cosmos, from quantity, quality, relation, space, time, doing, and suffering. In the age of abstraction, something extraordinary occurred in academic logic. Only suppose if in certain schools the concern was not with teaching people to read, but with compiling books in which every possible combinations of ABCD had to be learned, AC, AB, BE, and so on, but not so as to learn by this, to make use of the letter, in a way that could bring any rich content to their souls. This would be to do exactly the same as the world has done to the logic of Aristotle. In his logic, what are called categories were put forward. They were learned by heart. But people did not know how to make use of them. This is similar to learning the ABC by heart without knowing how to use it. Reading in the script of the universe can be traced back to something as simple as the learning of ABC is to the content of Faust. In fact, what has been put forward by Anthroposophy, and can continue to be put forward, is arrived at from these ideas in the same way as the reading of Faust is arrived at by means of letters. For all the secrets of the physical and the spiritual world are contained as a cosmic alphabet within these simple concepts. You have to realize that in the course of the world's development it happened that, as opposed to the earlier direct perception of which the events at Ephesus were still the most characteristic example, something arose which had its beginning at the time of Alexander, and continued to evolve more especially during the Middle Ages, something most profoundly hidden and esoteric. Most profoundly esoteric is the thought living in these simple conceptions. We must learn really to live more and more in them. We must strive to experience them in our souls when these have a richly organized content filled with spirit as vividly as we experience the ABC. Thus we see how in these concepts whose inner illumination and source of power has once more to be discovered, was comprised something which, like a mighty instinctive revelation of wisdom, endured through thousands of years. And it will one day come to pass that what seems actually to have been laid within a grave, that is, the wisdom of the world, will once more emerge and find the light of the world. We will learn to read in the cosmos once more. And the resurrection of what has been kept in concealment during the interval of human evolution between the two spiritual epochs will again be experienced. Our purpose, my dear friends, is to reveal to mankind that which has been hidden. We are there to shape Easter as a human experience. I can therefore say, as on other occasions, anthroposophy is a Christmas event, and in all its effects it is also an Easter event, a resurrection experience that is connected with a burial. And it is important that we should feel, especially at this Easter assembly, the solemn sanctity, if I may so express it, of our anthroposophical aspirations, in that we have some perception of being able to go today to a spiritual being who stands near us, perhaps immediately beyond the threshold, and to whom we can say, Ah, at that time humanity was blessed, by a divine spiritual revelation, which shone with exceptional clarity at Ephesus, but now all that lies buried. How can I again bring forth what thus lies buried? Yet we can believe that what once has been can somewhere be found again, can be found in the grave where it was hidden. Then a being will answer us, as on a similar occasion, this same being answered once before. That which ye seek is no longer here, it is in your hearts, if only ye will open them to receive it in the right way. Anthroposophy already dwells in the human hearts. Humans have only to open their hearts to it in the right way. Then we shall experience in full sunlight, not in the ancient... Instinctive way, our return to that wisdom which lived in and illumined the mysteries. These are the things, my dear friends, which I desired to bring before you at this Easter season. For to fill ourselves with that which, like a sacred breath, can inflame the heart of every one who holds to anthroposophy, and can bear us with it into the spiritual world is an impulse which is closely associated with the Christmas conference given at Dornach This impulse must not remain something that can be thought out. It cannot stop at intellectuality. It must be an impulse coming from the heart, not dry or insipid, not sentimental, but in accordance with its whole nature it must be a very solemn one. In the same way as the flames of at Ephesus were used by Aristotle to fire his heart anew. And after they had streamed up into the cosmic ether, they had brought to him again the secrets which he was then able to grasp in their primal significance. As the fire at Ephesus could be used in this way, it is laid upon us. And we shall soon be able to carry out the demand, I say this in all humility, it is laid upon us to use that which, as the aim and purpose of anthroposophy, was carried up into the ether, along with the flames of the Gertianum, for the further carrying out of this purpose. What is to be the outcome of this, my dear friends? The outcome is to be that we receive a new impulse from the Gertianum, that the annual commemoration of the sad event which falls at Christmas time the time in which this misfortune overtook us, we must receive a fresh impulse from the Gertianum And why? Because we should feel what formerly was more or less an earthly concern, founded and constructed as a thing of earth, has been borne up by the flames into the wide spaces of the cosmos. Because this misfortune has come upon us, we ought to be able to say in recognizing the results of this misfortune, We now realize that we should not have carried this out as a merely earthly concern, but as one appertaining to the whole, far-reaching, etheric world in which the spirit dwells. Then what happened to the Gertianum becomes something that concerns the wide ether in which the spirit-filled wisdom of the universe dwells. It has been carried out far into the beyond and we must fill ourselves with the impulses of the Gertianum that come to us from out the cosmos. Let us take this as we will. Let us take it as an image. But the image contains a profound truth, and this profound truth can be expressed in simple words when we say, the activities of anthroposophy have been permeated with an esoteric tendency since the time of the Christmas conference in 1923 this esoteric impulse or tendency exists for though the earthly part through the cooperation of physical fire streamed out into space as astral light this impulse works back again into the anthroposophical movement if only we are in a position to receive it when we are able to do this we are aware of a most important factor in all that lives in Anthroposophy. This important factor or part is the mood of Easter feeling, that Anthroposophical feeling that can never be persuaded that the Spirit can possibly die, but that when, owing to the world, it has to die, it rises eternally anew. Anthroposophy must hold to the Spirit that from eternal foundations ever rises again. Let us take this to our hearts as an Easter thought, an Easter feeling. We will then take with us from this place of meeting, when we make our way into other walks of life, something which will give us courage and power to carry on our work. The end of Lecture 10 and the end of this cycle of lectures. As I mentioned before, there are a number of appendices that I will not be reading. This is Collected Works, Volume 233A, entitled Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, Mystery Centers of the Middle Ages, The Easter Festival and the History of the Mysteries, translated by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine.